2: Rachel Zoe here and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that will be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled, strategized, and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with my great friend, multi-hyphenate Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde is an author, a writer, an actor, an entrepreneur. He recently hosted the often number one global podcast, Spit with iHeart, and is hosting hopefully his one season run of Live on Lockdown, a pandemic show that he's live streaming from his home in Los Angeles. Please welcome to the podcast, my good friend Baratunde. Baratunde, thanks for being on the show. Thank
4: you, Jeff. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. You're in East LA, Northeast LA. I've, I've learned uh, Highland park. There is a, a place called East LA. This is not yes. necessarily considered to be it. Um, so I don't, I'm new here. And the last thing I want to start is like beef with the locals. So this but not to,
3: <laughs> not to be a geographic
4: snob, but if you were more East LA, you'd just be in Mount Washington or Pasadena. I'm just gonna to have to go with you on that. Like I said, I'm new here, and I'm not trying to start any beef. <laughs> well, welcome,
3: <laughs> welcome to L.A. Like you're one, you. you're Thank one of the you. few people I know who moved from New York to L.A. and you're working more, not less.
4: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm working happier. Uh, I'd like to think I'm working smarter, not harder. Um, I'd I pray so. We're too old to just yeah. work harder. I traded rats for hummingbirds, which was a really nice upgrade of, of local vermin. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's been good. I'm not one of those New Yorkers that just talks trash about Los Angeles and, and how it isn't New York all the time. I recognize that it isn't New York. That's part of why I'm here. Um, and I still love New York. Like I can like both places Mm -hmm. and choose to live in one of them. And it it's, not a massive diss on the other place. It's, and, okay. and, and where did you grow up? Remind me. I'm an East Coaster through and through. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, born in 77. Did Got in my, it. I like 18 years in D.C. as a child. 12 Got years it. in Boston as a college student and presumptive adult. Uh, and then 12 years in New York City as a... Hustler. (laughs) Yeah. And you, you know, you went to
3: a small community college in, in in Boston
4: called Harvard. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's been Um, around
4: for a little while. Um, And if they get their act together, they could be a great institution someday.
3: But but you're, you are, I mean, when I was thinking about this podcast and, and you know, the, the, the theme of the show, the art of the hustle, I mean, you really are such a blue ocean under yourself. Like there's no competition for the other Day. like I just, I was thinking about your career and your background. Like you're, you're one. You're, you know, you were very much, you know, an early adopter to technology, to new platforms. You always were very much, you know, uh, willing to, you know, try the next new thing and and go out on the edge. But you worked with the Onion and the Daily Show and advised the Obama White House. I remember when you, you know, you put out your book How to Be Black. You've just done so many things. It's kind of. So you're just a uh, you know, typical L.A. actor slash model slash stand-up comedian?
4: I believe the term you're looking for is multi-hyphenate, Jeff.
3: Ah, okay. <laughs> Slashy. Slashy is what me and
4: my Slashy. stupid friends say. Yeah. No, Multi, that's, that's... Multi-hyphenate's a lot better. Some agent mentioned that to me years ago, and I, I was like, that sounds insulting, but I think I get what you're going for. Uh, yeah. yeah w- when you create enough um, confusion and lack of focus in your career, you can also come across as unique and and uh you know uh, unassailable and so i think there's two sides to that coin for me and it's largely served me to have such a diverse array of stuff has been really good um but it makes it hard sometimes you know when you don't fit in any box people are like well what what are you exactly who are you um and so th- when i when that answer is a list people can get very impressed and excited, or they get a little frustrated and confused depends on. Well, well the it is, is,
3: it is multidisciplinary, but what drives you? What do you think is, what, what are some of the aspects that of, of your work that, you know, inspire these different, you know, activities and, and, and disciplines?
4: So um, justice inspires me. Uh, use of my voice effectively inspires me and motivates me. I would say even more than inspires. It's like, why bother um, and what, what there's a unifying theme across a lot of the work I do. I've done stand-up, I've done TV production, I've hosted visual and audio things, and I've done a lot of amplification of good political work in the form of sure. you know, a version of activism. So use of expression, like talking, writing, being on screen, on camera, um, in service of something larger than my ego is, is what drives. And then the, the themes... Are generally around you know like race is a huge theme because i was born black in america with a very uh open-eyed and, and wise mother you're and black they, i i know i know we we kind of buried the lead on that jeff <laughs> but yes i am black <laughs> and then in yeah, technology you know not just like the gadgetry of it yeah but what it's being used for um, totally so always with me it's it's the kind of impact it's the why and there's a bit of, um, despite swimming in the waters of some you know, troubling issues, race, tech, politics, I aspire to a positive outcome, and I believe that a better outcome is possible. So what motivates me um, is the possibility that we can do better than we've done. And I, I don't think the future is written. I think we write it.
3: What came, what came first, the sense of purpose or the stage talent? Like were you entertaining Yo. people and were you a comedian first or did you have like the, the no, call to action?
4: Man, that's funny. Um, I was very serious as a child. You know, I, was, uh, I would like lecture my friends, which was not fun for them. <laughs> um, and, you know, my mother impressed a lot of values on me And so I just inherited and absorbed that. And the the entertainment, the integration of that with entertainment will come later. I mean, I knew I had some talent as a kid. I was in youth orchestras. I did plays and musicals, just the school stuff. And Mm. I enjoyed it. But it wasn't really until college that I started to merge. Oh, I have this performance instinct and this voice. And I have these messages that I really care about what would happen if i put them together not just for silliness and and crowd claps um mm-hmm. on the one side and not just for like righteousness on the other but like could you blend some righteousness turn it down a little bit and uh amp up the invitation and the uh, entertainment value and so that's been the experiment for like the past 20 years
3: yeah i i grew up you know as you like you know with some of these first gen You know, mp3.com, Audio Galaxy, Kazaa, Napster, (laughs) uh, BitTorrent. Winamp. 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 Yo.
4: All day long. All day long. (laughs) Winamp was great. The first visualizers. I love that graphic equalizer. It was so hypnotic. It was like I didn't do any drugs at that point in my life. I'm like, that was the closest to drugs I got in like the first 25 years of my life was the Winamp visualization.
3: M- not me too, but, yeah, yeah, you know, cool. something sort of like that. We're different. <laughs> uh, We're also but, different. Yeah. We're the same but you know, different.
4: But, uh, but, you know, the reason I mention
3: it is I remember getting uh, exposed, because this is before YouTube. This is really before right. Google Video or any of these things, um, getting exposed to, like, the great stand-ups, like hearing, you know, uh, Bill Hicks or yeah. Richard Pryor or yeah. hearing, you know, more modern comedians or Eddie Murphy. or And, and the philosophy is in there. Like, the, you know, do you think that there is some – some truth to this idea that you know m- many of our modern philosophers are comedians at this time.
4: Of course, and it's a self-serving thing for me to believe as a practitioner <laughs> as a practitioner of comedic arts. I, don't know, I mean, served- you might be you might be cynical on it because you you're know, close it, to it. It serves the public and it serves my ego, Jeff. These are my favorite okay. questions to answer. That's great. That's great. Um, but uh, yeah, look, not every comedian is Bill Hicks or Richard Pryor or early Whoopi Goldberg or Moms Mabley. Like so. It's, it doesn't follow necessarily that because you're a comedian, you're a prophet. You know? But I think some of the best practitioners are and are very keen observers of society and sometimes um, pioneers in what society could look like and sort of very visionary folk. And when you do any kind of art, I think, you know, I started realizing this a while ago. I thought it was special to comedy. And I do mm-hmm. think comedy is special. But for a moment, I'm going to set it aside and say arts in general have this function where an artist is this sponge who absorbs the world and then processes it through a very unique mind and a set of life experiences and then expresses that understanding outwardly in a sculpture, in a play, in a symphony, uh, Mm -hmm. in a song and there's, a, there's a, a metamorphosis and a transformation of the human experience in one mode to another. And that's magic. And doing it with comedy is its own particular version because I think comedy, so because of the interactivity of stand-up in particular, where you've got a live audience and like the completion of the art requires other people. So it's a social mm-hmm. art. It's also a performative art. It's very much a a storytelling and narrative art. So it combines some of these other forms of art into one thing. And yet it looks very simple. It's just a human talking. Um, Totally. so, So I think there is something special about comedy, even as it falls in the larger umbrella of well, there's something special about art.
3: And, and speaking of like the, you know, being a multi-hyphenate and art and expressing it in these different ways, you, yeah. you, you know, you wrote a book eight years ago, which blows my mind that it was eight I know, years it ago, me feel so old. but, but it, but it does, it does, you know, stick out to me as a bit of a breakout moment for you, how to be black. And yeah. I, uh, I was, I was looking through my emails, looking at our relationship history, how we got introduced that kind of thing. And you sent me an email saying that if you don't buy this book, you're a racist. Yeah. Not it a link to your book I mean,
4: It was proven by science. We have a, controlled yes. double-blind study that proves people who did not buy that book were in fact more racist than those who did. But it was more, I, I do also recall, it was more about how to actually
3: be, it seemed like it was more for black people by a black person more than like for me, a white dude approximating how to be like, you know, like how to speak for all black people probably wasn't a chapter that was targeted at me personally, right?
4: So I, the book, and I, again, this is like public service and ego service. It looks yeah. for everyone. And what I found after it was released, you have an idea of your art, and then you have the reality when it hits the public, is that I would get relatively equal volumes of feedback, positive feedback from people who were black in the way that I was and people who were not black at all. And so yeah. I wrote it mostly as me for some experience like me. I was just capturing my experience. And it was, it's a memoir of a 30 two-year-old or 34-year-old, which is ambitious. Um, But when you are that committed and specific about your perspective, it opens it up for other people to identify with it. And so you are not meant to read that book and become Black, but you are meant Mm -hmm. to read it and understand a little bit more about what it might mean to be Black. And so speaking for all Black people, Was, yes, a practical, frustrating guide for those of us who've been called on in the classroom as the only black person to represent our entire ethnicity and history. But also, Mm -hmm. if you're the kid waiting for the black kid to answer the question, it's to put you on the spot and rethink about your classroom experiences. And like, did you join that pressure campaign on young Baratunde or young Giselle or whoever person. No, you know that it's like there, there's uh, there was,
3: there was not the same sensitivity to like low key racism, yeah. like LKR. It's not like, you know, you're a terrible person because you're low key racist. It's that, you know, we all have these perspectives and these ways in which we express ourselves or see things that are unique to our own experience. And, you know, we are all a little bit racist. It's kind of impossible to be know, fully flat, but, but more, more important to, you know, this, this conversation specifically, just cause I'm so curious, you yeah. know, like putting out a book scares the shit out of me. Like <laughs> I've been working on a book and it's like so intimate. It's so expressive of like, you know, a part of you and a version. It's sort of like, I feel this pressure to do it the best, you know. It's got to be the best. It's got to be like your best expression of yourself, because yeah. it is, you know. You think YouTube's forever? It's like you put out the book, <laughs> you know, like it's it's got its own Wikipedia page. Yeah. In eighty years, like your grandchildren are going to read the dumb shit that you know I wrote, and and, and I just think that I don't know. I, I did. Did you feel that pressure, or did you did you have a a, a lot of self confidence at that moment in time? Did you have a great editor?
4: Like how? I what was the process? I didn't really. Think about the pressure until right now, Jeff. And when you put it that way, it's like, oh, what was I thinking? Why did I write a book? I'm so stupid. Um, I, in the moment, I didn't overthink that. And part of the reason uh, you hinted at it, I do have a high degree of self confidence. That's usually very helpful. I had a lot mm-hmm. of practice expressing my first person experience on stage doing stand up and in blogging. For years, where Mm. I was writing a ton of political observations, but also it's like here's what's going on in my life, and so it was it was warm up to something like a memoir. But I'm going to cut to another moment in my life, which is a TED Talk that I gave, you know, about a year ago from the time that you and I are talking, also on the subject of race. And in both the the How to Be Black case and the TED Talk case, I did put a lot of myself out in public. And mm. part of why I was able to do that is confidence in my experience and my ability to communicate it, but partly it was ignorance um, and not a, com- not a complete understanding of the consequences of that. And that willingness to be sort of partially blindly vulnerable slash confident slash stupid slash brave, it's, it's a mix. Mm. And you don't know how it's going to break when it lands. You know, In my case, in both cases, overwhelmingly positive. Some negatives, but I don't regret doing that. But if I had thought too much before doing it, I wouldn't have done it, I think. And so the sure. trick is to hide the consequences of those actions a little bit from yourself. Don't overconsider it because you know, we would never take any risk if we fully assess the risk. Totally. And what what was the foundation of that confidence for you
3: in believing in your own ideas?
4: Uh, I mean, I got lucky. You know, I think I had, I won a partial genetic lottery where some parts of myself I can't take any credit for. It's just the way I was born. I really won the parent lottery. And on paper, you know, I had a somewhat sob story youth. I was raised by a single black mother. My father was shot and killed when I was eight years old. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's in the book. It's in the book, but it did come out eight years ago, so I don't expect you to remember all my life story every well, second. I would
3: have I should have remembered that part specifically. But, but please continue.
4: Um, my mother, she just did a great job. She wasn't perfect. She had a lot of pain in her life, and she was struggling with things, and she had a very high bar for me and my sisters, and that, that was uh, – that was good sometimes. It was excessive in other times. But my own confidence comes from, in part, her confidence in me and belief that I'm worthy of love, that I'm deserving mm-hmm. of opportunity, that I'm capable of greatness. And I just, I have met other people. I have seen the results of other people who got the exact opposite encouragement in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. And the first, decade of my life, I just got positive reinforcement. Try again. Is that, yes, you can. Is that
3: is that specific language that your mom would use that you were just expressing, or is that just how you remember it? Or That's how I remember words? it. I don't,
4: you know, I wasn't yeah. so eloquent when I was six. Yeah. Okay. okay, <laughs> But, yeah. you know, it, her version might be like, I said, go outside and play. Right? Yeah. Um, she, I do remember her encouraging me to audition well before I had any interest in doing things on camera. Um, yeah. But I remember her pu- pulling out a newspaper there was an advertisement for like, kids to audition to be in an ad. You know, it's an ad yeah. for ads, which is very meta. And she ha- opened the paper, pointed it out, and said, you could do that. And so she just planted this little possibility. And it was, it was the opposite of some of the people who I've known in life whose parents only told them things they couldn't do including yeah. my own mother. You know, her mother did not treat her with the same respect that she treated me. Her mother was a lot of negativity. It was a lot of you're you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you'll never amount to, you, you're problem this, problem that. And I just I don't remember hearing anything like that from my own mother. I remember her disappointment when I didn't measure up to her standards. I remember if I failed in some way to behave appropriately, or if I disrespected her in some way, the hammer would come down. But she was, yeah. she never called me stupid. And she never said I couldn't do something. If anything, she was annoyed if I didn't do it well.
3: And and I hear you on the positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, did you did you ever do anything in particular that helped you deal with like trauma? Perhaps the comedy was a piece of that, or like You know, I think that, you know, now here we are all in quarantine, Um, you know, we all go through our own versions of like different levels of trauma in our life. And, you know, for me, when I think about, you know, how to have this abundance versus scarcity mentality, like, you know, believe that, you know, you are capable of greatness, you know, oftentimes some of the roadblocks for people is, you know, just sort of a, a a loop. Or, you know, uh, uh, that that goes back to some kind of trauma or some kind of negative experience. Mm -hmm. Was there something that was like sort of a a cornerstone for you that like, you know, allowed you
4: to really, you know, take the positive and run with it? So before I get to that, let me acknowledge some of the traumatic. Because I'm 42 now. And I think if you and I had spoken seven years ago, maybe five, definitely 10 plus. I wouldn't have even acknowledged it. I mean, like, I would have done what I already did in this conversation, which is like, yeah, some bad stuff happened, but mostly it's all good. And yeah. I, um, I've, i you know, lost my father at a very early age. I, you know, had this great mother who also struggled and sacrificed a ton to make mm-hmm. sure I was cared for. I was divorced, you know, a decade ago plus now in a way that was super emotionally harsh and blindsiding. And so the turning a major turning point um, is therapy. And I had a, yeah. a wonderful therapist, Dr. Edward Meehan, who sadly passed away a few months ago. Um, Big Ed. Yeah, Ed was great. And I, I found him after my divorce, but I really started to use him years after in a new relationship with some beautiful struggles I was having. Um, and through that, started opening up. Okay, well, let's look at this life story you've got. Let's look at what you're not talking about. Let's. Um, what are the areas of yourself that you're avoiding or unwilling to open up? And this reconnects a little bit, Jeff, to you know what I mentioned with the How to Be Black and the TED Talk and being vulnerable um, and sharing some more of those painful parts. So, the, in the TED Talk, I mentioned being pulled over by the police. I'm with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my fiance, who's white. I'm nervous. It's America where cops shoot black people. I don't know this town very well at all, but I suspect it's as racist as the average American town, which is pretty racist. Mm-hmm. And I confess in the talk about my exhaustion and at the whole thing, at existing, yeah. and, and the exhaustion at the burden of existing in a society like this. And so part of why I've gotten to where I've gotten to is because I just also reinforce a positive story internally. Like, I got this. I'm okay. I got a great network. I'm so lucky. I'm so capable. But if I pause and get out of like the high intensity interval training workout of self imposed positivity to acknowledge the sprains and the strains on my body and my psyche and my soul, it's devastating. It's really exhausting and it's really emotional. So it's not that I've gotten through all of that, or had some moment where like ah, I processed all my history, I'm good for the future. It's that I'm really just now starting to deeply acknowledge it, and still figure out how to stay positive, stay invested in society, uh, get up in the morning, clean myself, you know, just do the stuff of being a generally acceptable, <laughs> loving human being. Uh, but it's not just as easy as think positive and hope you have a good mom it's way messier than that we'll be back with more art of the hustle after the break
0: Listen to a brand new season of math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the -the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. I cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You know, I loved your podcast this past year. Oh, um, thank you. Spit Podcast. I know you're working on... I know you're working on a new one. Is that, it seems it's a format that you're really well suited for. Was it, it was for a moment there. I believe it was like the number one podcast in at least the US, at least the iTunes that I used, yeah. correct?
4: It was, it was, you did it. Yeah. Spit uh, podcast was with 23 and Me. It was like a, a branded show with them. And then iHeart was my creative distribution partner. And we were exploring not genetic testing and spitting into tubes, but what DNA means to who we are and our relationship to each other. So it's a very fun show. To I like hard stuff, and so weaving a conversation with a celebrity musician who was almost always present and a scientist who was almost always present is not the most natural mix. And so, how do you make that feel natural? That was that was joyful for me. Um, I, I love the medium. We did beat Oprah several times in the rankings, and I will say that. Uh, because that's just a point of pride. I love Oprah, but the, <laughs> but I got the screenshot to prove it. I didn't Photoshop it. Uh, that, we, yeah. that we exceeded her her show a couple of times, and yeah, I love the medium. I grew up in an audio rich world. Never had cable TV mm. until after I graduated college, um, and so I was stuck on PBS channels and like the the, the high number count. TV stations felt like cable to me. We had to turn the second knob to, to get mm-hmm. the key into those. And a lot of radio. Um, my mother listened to radio plays and radio dramas on Sunday night on the public radio station. We yeah. listened to Whoopi Goldberg tapes and Bill Cosby tapes on our road trips before we knew he was a monster. And, mm-hmm. um, and we had stories you know, within our own family. So I've been talking into mics a lot of my life, but I started in 2003 um, a very early podcast out of my low power FM radio show in Boston. And I would like record it from the board, convert it to MP3, put it up on my website in RSS. And that was an early podcast called the front porch podcast. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've been, you know, sometimes you're so early you like miss the major money wave <laughs> that, yeah. that comes, but it, 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 none of these things, none of my experience in tech has ever led to like a big pile of money it's led to a lot of great community, a lot of great creativity. So I'm generally uh, pleased with that.
3: Do you think that your lack of access to like, say cable, you know, until after college led to you being more adaptive and, you know, and uh, accepting to new technologies? Like you, you, you were early on everything. Like I don't, you know, what, what do you think? What do you think was the, what? What was the precursor for that?
4: Yeah. I think if I had had cable in high school, um, i would have had more friends for sure like it just would have made life just to talk about easier as the stuff that kids talk about yeah to know who like puck was from the real world which okay. i just had to pretend to understand you know because i didn't and music videos you know i had a mm-hmm. very limited access to music videos through a broadcast tv show that would come on like midnight on saturdays called pump it up and it was a half hour so i would get a half hour fix of music videos Meanwhile, friends are running around talking about MTV and they're mm-hmm. able to pull up, and this is well before anyone today who grows up with YouTube and can just yep. on-demand access culture. But uh, in the you know late 80s, early 90s, it was very different. So instead, I did have a lot of time on my hands. I had no girlfriends. <laughs> I had good friends who I liked, but I had no car, so I couldn't see them as easily as some of the friends who did. So I was on the computer all the time. And my mother, you know, brought computers into our house in like starting in 1982, maybe 83. So that wow. was a natural, it was way more natural to me to have a computer than to have a cable TV subscription. And that was true from, you know, age six to, well, even now I'm still much more comfortable with the computer than with a cable box. Um, and so yeah, I filled that time with exploration, with some hacking, with finding communities online, with building stuff, weird websites, learning a program, breaking things. And it certainly affected my perspective on how to create and like what's worth creating. Cause I think if I just watched a lot of television, if I was lucky, I might have thought I could make television. Mm. Or I might have just thought I can consume a lot of television. You know, like you just get really good at consuming. And that's what kind of our society wants from so much of us just be a better consumer. And and instead, I I grew up in a much more interactive space of uh, the early internet pre-Nazi internet, I might add, where it was much less dangerous and misinformation-filled than the, than the risks we have today. And so that gave me a different approach to um, even how I make comedy or how I wrote my book or how I do versions of activism right now.
3: And Nazi internet alluding not to a totalitarian overstructure, but to the fact that so many of our kids are getting radicalized by like right-wing media on these social yeah. platforms right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a
4: great... I mean, look, there's all there's risks in every human endeavor. So the internet is not uniquely risky versus other tools in our history. But I think the, um, the ability to apply sort of cult or gang recruitment techniques to terrorist organizations, to white supremacist organizations, to all kinds of hate-based groups is uh, does create a, a special challenge because mm-hmm. they can reach out to and do successfully reach out to The same kid that a a gang person might reach out to but it's just at scale and so if there's a a kid out there who's lonely who's feeling neglected or abused who's feeling resentful or angry for good or bad reasons there is someone out there willing to prey on that um and and plant even darker more negative seeds in that person so the internet makes that easy as well not just the wonderful cat gifts
3: well, it's also, but to your point, you know, memes, the more extreme, the more effective typically. Like that's, that's you know, it's just, it's more shareable. It's more salacious. It has a better sort of uh, long tail for, you know, better, for lack of a better term. So, you know, just the nature of the platform sort of uh, pushes the sort of most extreme to the top. Um, and, you know, your your work really focuses on positivity Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about your new show, Pandemic Show, yeah. live, on lock, lo- yeah. live on Lockdown.
4: Live on Lockdown. So you and I are talking. Um, it's the last day of the first quarter of 2020. And given yeah. the speed of COVID-19, the coronavirus that, that powers it, I don't know where the world's going to be by the time someone is listening to this. But at this moment, mm-hmm. we're two weeks into an experiment on my part to... Create a show for this moment, which you know I woke up literally at three thirty a.m. on a Saturday morning, couldn't fall back asleep. My mind is just active, and it was like live on lockdown. We're all gonna be stuck <laughs> at home, live on lockdown. LOL. Oh my god, that could be like mm-hmm. a fun show, and it's legit, and it's like on point. And, and so you know, who knows if it'll become a huge hit? It's serving a need, and and right now. Uh, the show is designed to kind of be this public service media, where I'm kind of talking about issues related to uh, the pandemic. It is conversations with people all over the world. Now, I had a man in northern Italy, you know, before Italy fully exploded, and he predicted the United States would be next because we hadn't taken mm-hmm. the early steps, and that is bearing out as you and I speak. Uh, a minister of parliament in in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of wonderful people who I'm able to hear from and vice versa. And then I throw a lot of jokes and distractions and creative things people can do in this time because it's not all negative. It totally. is overwhelmingly negative, but humanity must go on. And, you know, we've we've got to keep living. We're going to keep creating. We're going to keep cooking. We're going to keep laughing. And so weaving yeah. in real human stories and experiences with this you know level of humor and in my own perspective that's the goal of the show and i get real silly sometimes i did a live segment where i was just in the kitchen being chef Atunde making my my pseudo secret anti-cold fighting brew with like apple cider vinegar and all the things does not stop mm-hmm. coronavirus by the way but makes you feel real good and it's just yeah. uh, a fun thing or, or filling out my census online live because when you fill out your census online you prevent a worker from having to come to your house and put themselves at risk.
3: Art of the hustle will be right back after this short break.
0: Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to Season 1 to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. I cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You know, I want to ask you about uh, some of this because you have such a unique perspective. You have these, you know, guests from around the world. You translate so many different languages, like, you understand. jargon of a hundred different worlds, you know? Um, and, and do you, do you find, you know, here we are 2020, all locked in our houses sort of alone. Do you find that, you know, we accentuate the extremes and are actually closer aligned in our view and vision of sort of a shared future? Or do you think that we truly are as far apart as it feels in days like today, like, you know, Republican, Democrat, environmentalist, you know, Uh, 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 fundamentalist Christian, like, how do we perceive things that were further apart than they actually are, or are we actually indeed at this moment in history where it does just feel like you know we really can't talk to one another anymore?
4: Man, that's a hard question. Um, In part, I don't know. I, I acknowledge the question. You know, are we as far apart as we perceive ourselves to be, and? Getting at the truth of that, I think, is really challenging. I want to believe the answer is no. And a lot of my experience confirms that we are aligned in our core desires for love and relevance and purpose and security and comfort and uh, belonging. We, We all want things kind of like that we also have a great capacity to deny those things to others who we perceive as totally different from us. And part of the gap, if we just speak of kind of Democrat, Republican, U.S. perspective, part of that gap is exacerbated by the fact that we don't have the same information flows in our worlds. This virus is such a window, and it's a, it's a paradox because the, a, a pandemic is a uniting element it is a a pandemic brings us all together a virus will hop from a a buddhist to a hindu it will hop Mm. from a a jew to a muslim it'll hop from an atheist to a fundamentalist it'll hop from a democrat to a republican but the effects and what happens after that hop are dependent on the world that each of those groups occupy. And so you see these huge discrepancies in the U.S. between how seriously someone who leans Democratic takes this versus who leans Republican. And it's not that there's some different genetics involved in the Republican or the Democrat. It's that there's different media inputs. And you've got a whole ecosystem. uh, And I attempt to be fair, but I don't want to lie. I think you have... A very dangerous and uninformed, purposefully so, media ecosystem on the right in this country that is playing down, that has played down uh, this virus, and that will cost lives. There will be consequences beyond public opinion for that level of disinformation. The result will be more death, and so then it's not a it's not a joke. It's not a game. It's not a, a, a sort of perception. It, it also is the reality, and that's 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 very. Painful to acknowledge, but I think it's very real, and so I hope that as we get to a world where this virus wreaks even more havoc and causes more pain, that the gap between perception and reality is forced to close. Uh, It is easy to say, "Oh, the the sodomites in New York City don't share my values, and therefore I'm not going to listen to anything they say." But once the same things start happening to you, thousands of miles away from the Sodom and Gomorrah of your mind that is New York City, Uh you can continue to deny it right up until you're in an ICU ward. And at some point you'll have a, no pun intended, come to Jesus moment that will deny the denials you've been forced to hear from some of the misinformers on certain radio and and TV networks and acknowledge this is bad, this is wrong. And you see, you know, as well, to get less about the specifics of the virus, but just how we respond to it. Big spending, big stimulus, checks wired into every American home. These things four months ago were being railed against as like a Venezuelan takeover of our free society. And that's not true. And meanwhile, a lot of the things that we were so proud of as Americans are, are robust, competitive markets are killing us because you've forced governors to compete with governors for critical protective medical equipment. That's, yeah. that's where you want the socialism, you know? And, totally. and so, so it's, um, it's an opportunity, whether we learn from it in a sustainable way, who knows? I, I hope so. And I'm trying to contribute to making it. So, but I can't make any guarantees
3: Yeah. And it's, it's, I think that you made a really, you know, um, insightful point that, you know, three weeks ago, you know, a trillion dollars for healthcare was heresy, impossible, total economic ruin. And now here we are lighting up 6 trillion, you know, um, between the Congress and the treasury um, to, you know, help alleviate the, the, this sort of like once in a generation economic event, you know, the medical cost and the cost of like loved ones who are gonna you know um have very very difficult times whether they die or they, they are you know in in very dire m- medical conditions over the next you know 30 60 90 days and potentially through the end of the year like we we really are you know going to have you know i think we are going to have to reexamine sort of our consumerist you know uh urges you talk about being a better consumer um, well, I mean, if there's nobody to show off all of your consumer purchases too, yeah. it, it's like just if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, doesn't make a sound. Um, so, you know, perhaps, you know, we'll immediately find new, you know, uh, manja to munch on and, and sort of like, you know, uh, uh dope ourselves back into this dream state. Um, but it does seem like, you know, it's forcing everybody to wake up a bit right now. I'm I'm curious, like, you know, what do you think our responsibilities are? You know, it seems like people that are the most marginalized in our societies are going to get the brunt of this and have it the worst. I agree with you. It jumps from Muslims to Hindus, from, you know, Christians to atheists. What it doesn't necessarily jump as far to is like people that don't have to leave their house versus people that do have to leave their house to make a living. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, like, you know, I I do see you as a thought leader, as a generational thought leader. I, you know, I do think that you have a very unique and singular voice and perspective. I want to know, like, what what do you think our responsibilities are as like young leaders, as, you know, business leaders? What 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 do you think we we should be doing with our time, with our resources for people in this
4: moment? Uh, thank you for that low pressure question, Jeff. Um, and I, I'll, I'll return briefly. I want to give credit to a specific person named Kirsten Vandenhoel. She's a member of parliament in, in The Hague in the Netherlands. And she said, you know, this virus doesn't discriminate, but the effects of the pandemic do. And I think that gets at your point. Yeah. Um, and you and, and if you didn't hang out with
3: parliamentary figures that you could quote <laughs> offhand, I wouldn't ask you high pressure <laughs> questions. But this is Touché. your life. Touche.
4: Touche. So yeah, so we see you know, some school districts are thriving. You know, well-resourced private schools, their kids might actually get ahead out of this. But if you're in rural parts of the country and the world and you don't have robust internet folks are literally printing out lesson plans and leaving them at the school for families to come pick up. And so this will widen the gap, even as the virus attempts to bring us all back together from an epidemiological perspective. What we need to do is, I think, a combination of things. We've been through crises before, and I think we know what can happen. We can have a a big stimulus. We can have a huge effort to fight back. And and a lot of that is this top-down approach where we help out the big business and hope they help out their employees, where we help out the property owner and hope they extend that largesse to their tenant, where where we help out, you know, these centralized powerful organizations and hope it extends to the edge. But we have to think of this from the bottom up as well. And I think if you're offering sort of mortgage deferral, but not empowering renters to benefit from that, That is not going far enough. I think we could flip the whole thing on its head. Assume that the wealthiest, healthiest, strongest, most accepted versions and and members of our society are in the best position to bounce back and leverage the help at the other end of the spectrum. Who's in an ICE detention center right now? Who is incarcerated in some form right now? Who is already have a, a, a compromised immune system? who doesn't have access to broadband, who isn't in a safe home or because of abuse or because of pollution, and make sure that those folks are covered. And this is not what we're doing. This is not what we're going to do as a general societal response, but this is what we should do. Because when you take care of the least of these, you take care of the most. I didn't make that up. It's ancient wisdom in like most of the good books of the world. But we forget it when it's convenient to forget. And so I think if we have a bottom-up one, you don't just save the banks. You save the people victimized by the banks. You put money in their pockets. Um, And I think we listen to the people who know. know. We've got all the information we ever need to make good decisions. We just don't have a process that allows us to do that. And so I think out of this, we've got to return back to our politics. You know, the pandemic is going to be the pandemic. There'll be other crises. Our politics is what gives us the ability to respond to crises or take advantage of opportunity. And if it's broken, so will our response. And so will our ability to thrive. And we're finding that out now, painfully. People are going to die who don't have to die. People have already died who didn't need to die. Because, not because our science wasn't good, because our politics wasn't good. Um, And that's all on us. You know, we can fix that, but we got to like, want to do it.
3: Well, I think that. You know, to again celebrate, you know, things that are good for society and that stroke your ego. Um, <laughs>
4: I think that,
3: dude. I think that the truth is, is that you know, policy follows sentiment. Yeah. You know, and people follow those that they trust, and they trust people based on authenticity. And you're authentically who you are, and you know, you you know just built this incredible career and world through this totally uh, untrodden path. Um, And so, you know, I just applaud you for it. I appreciate you. You know, um, being on the podcast. And uh tell us, but you know, before before we before we sign yeah. off, what's next for you? What are you focusing on? Where do you go from here? So
4: where where I want you to go, where I want anyone listening to go, um, go to com slash live, dig into the show. Hopefully there's one season. I'm calling it my first and hopefully last season of live on lockdown, but we'll see. Sometimes good point. Sometimes these things pop back, you know, you think, you know, oh, it's going on hiatus for the summer it pops back in the fall. Uh, I'm looking for like a non-renewal on this uh, series, but that's not quite up to me. So check that out. Um, I have a phone number, which I love connecting with people on Uh, as a text number through this company community. It's 202-894-8844. Shoot me a text. I'll chat with folks. I send out my emails if you want them in your pocket like that. And I say happy birthday uh, before your friends do. So I'm like a better birthday friend than Most folks, Uh, what I'm working on, Jeff, is I'm going to keep making this particular show. I am going to continue to try to use my voice and whatever reach I have to inform people usefully, uh, to distract them uselessly in a way that's um, humorous and, and has some humanity in it and try to point attention at parts of the problem that don't get a lot of attention. You've done a great job with that just in our conversation here, just like the way you're asking questions and bringing things up. So I appreciate it. Um, So yeah, I'm building out a podcast. I've got some scripted show concepts in the work uh, because who in LA doesn't like, that's why you are here. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And yeah, and I'm just, I'm trying to be a, uh, a more honest, better version of me. And in the relationships I have with my fiance, with my family, with my friends. And that's like, Not work I'm making shows about, but I do think, you know, when you ask, like, what are you working on? I think it's very easy to rattle off, like, career thing, career thing, Mm -hmm. career thing, or social media, at me, at me. And I do want some of that, of course, it's currency. Yeah, But I'm also working on uh, some of the other shadowy stuff we talked of earlier, me, and my traumas, and my history, and my connection with others, and uh, how to be as open and as real and processing of that and bring all of me uh, to the work that I'm doing because I think it can only get more dope.
3: I'm with it. Well, you're a proper peaceful warrior. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for the friendship and I uh, keep rocking out there in uh, this, this time of Corona.
4: Thank you. Keep, uh, keep showing us the art of the hustle, man.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards
2: Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.